0: What will be next for us when the rapture takes place? What follows that event in God's time schedule? I wanna take the time this morning to look at the word of God and the scriptures and point our attention to the fact that there are really two options following what you just saw take place or the visualization of it. One is rewards. One for the believers, we will stand before the Bema, We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But for those who are left behind, those who are not in the rapture, there will be a time of wrath. And I want us to take time this morning to look briefly at the rewards. Most of us are familiar with what's going to take place. We've heard preaching on it. We've heard teaching on it. And we're aware of that passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14 that speak about the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to see some practical application this morning, some practical motivation that Paul used that truth to motivate the believers of that day and should be a motivation for us as well. And then I want to take time to look at the book of Revelation and what it describes is going to take place in a seven-year period of time that we often refer to as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of great wrath. I want you to turn with me, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and if you want to also put a finger or marker in Revelation chapter 6, we'll be going there as well. But we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What does the Bible have to say about that? Now, I don't know about you, but I believe that the Bible is the word of God. Amen? And I believe that what the Bible says is what we base uh, our understanding of pretty much everything in life. We understand the future based on what God says is going to take place. We know that his prophecies are sure. We know that the prophecies that pointed to the first coming of Jesus Christ were absolutely sure with precision. And I also believe that these prophecies that point toward his second coming are also just as sure and just as certain. But if we look at what the word of God has for us, then that shapes our understanding. I've talked to many people, even those who will say, yes, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and they will give answer to things, or they're worried about things, or they respond to certain events, and they they don't do it based through Scripture. So what I want to see this morning, I want us to see what God has to say, not what... Uh, Not what some preacher has to say, not what uh, some writer or some columnist or some news commentator has to say about the future, but what the Bible says is going to take place. As we understand the truth, it should change us and it should change our actions. Right thinking should always result in right actions. If we walk out of here this morning and we only have a better understanding of what's going to take place in the future, then we have failed. But if we walk out motivated as God intended us to be motivated and our thinking shaped with a with a better clearer understanding of who Jesus Christ is and who God is then we have accepted and we have received the fullness of God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and I want to just read just a few verses about this about this judgment this this seat that we will stand before. Begin with me in verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's our salvation. Nobody else can lay the foundation of salvation. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He goes on to talk about the temple of God, that we are God's building. He's already said we're God's building. So what he's talking about here is how we live after our salvation. Christ laid the foundation of our salvation. That is sure and that is certain. But how we build on that is very, very important when it comes to the time that you and I will stand before Jesus Christ. Following the rapture, when believers are called out and snatched away, we will go to be in the presence of God, and we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the first thought that many of us have is that sense of judgment, is there's going to be punishment that takes place. This is a punitive account this is an account of our works. You'll notice that he says those that, even the ones that their works are wood, hay, and stubble, they'll be saved. This is not whether we get into heaven or not. This is based on how we built on the foundation of our salvation. Whether we did what we did for the glory of God. How did you live your Christian life? Paul will use this truth that we will stand before what sometimes is referred to by the Greek word here, the bima. And it's the judgment seat, it's the same kind of seat that the athletes would come before to receive their reward after completing an athletic event. And they would receive the crowns, not the diadem crown, not the king's crown, but the Stephanus, the, the, the victor's crown. And they would receive that for their accomplishments. And we you and I will stand before Christ. Our salvation will be completed at that point. Aren't you glad for that, that he that began the good work will complete it and we'll stand before him, and that will be done. That will be completed. Our service will be rewarded. All that we have done on this earth will one day, will even if no one knows about it, think about the faithful servant of God who lived a faithful life and no one, they, they never made the television shows, they never made the news, they never had a big ministry behind their name, but they were faithful to God. They will receive the rewards based on their faithfulness and how they built on their salvation, the work that they did, and the, the life that they lived. But most of all, our Savior will be glorified. And that's really what this crown is about. Because the only successful Christian is the Christian who does what they were saved to do. Do you know what we were saved to do? I was not saved just to get me out of hell. Now, I'm thankful that I'm not going to hell. You read the scriptures and you read the torment, the eternal separation from God, the eternal pain that that will be, and I am thankful that I will not experience that for one moment. But that's not why I was saved. Oh, preacher, were, we're saved to go to heaven. Well, we're going to heaven... And I'm just as glad, I'm more glad of that than I am about getting out of hell. But God didn't save me to go to heaven. If God saved you to go to heaven, what are you doing here? All of y'all are still here this morning, right? Don't you just love when a preacher says, if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning, raise your hand. Some of y'all aren't sure where you are. They're like, what did he just say? No, if... if if we're still here, what did God save us for? The purpose of our salvation is to bring in this temporal time and for eternity to bring glory to God. And so the, the, the rewards that we will receive will be based on how much our life glorified Christ. It won't be on the amount that we did. There will be some who did a great amount and they'll set up their works and there will be amazing piles and it will be burned And it'll be wood, hay, and stubble because they did it for the glory of man or they did it in their own strength and the strength of the flesh. There will be others that will be unknown who will receive rewards that are gold, silver, and precious stones. In fact, there are some that believe, and I, I believe this is probably accurate, that our greatest reward at that moment and for eternity will be a greater capacity to manifest the glory of God. Now, every believer, there won't be any greater or lesser because every believer will fully manifest the glory that they are capable of. But what a reward for all eternity to bring greater glory to God. Paul will use this truth three times in his writings. And I want to quickly point these out to you. We're not going to turn to the passages, but if you want to write them down and look at them later. The first is found in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. And Paul will say, because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we should be motivated not to judge our brothers and sisters. Now that's not talking about judging something that's right and wrong. We are to practice biblical discernment. But Paul says, who are you that judges another man's servant? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You may look around and you may say, well, I do more than this person. Or that person, they're just a fake and they're just a phony. They don't really mean it when they're serving God. And we're quick to judge the works of another person. And Paul says, don't do that. Look, they'll stand before God for what they do. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, what do you think about this preacher? What do you think about this ministry? Let me tell you, as long as they're not preaching falsehood and they're not preaching heresy, they'll stand before God for what they do. They won't stand before me. So Paul says, look, you should be motivated not to judge those around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, because we'll all stand and give account for what we have done or not done. In our text passage, Paul says, this is motivation for us to build faithfully faithfully we're building on our salvation. We're not working for our salvation. We're working because we are saved. But he says, don't defile the temple. In other words, don't put, don't put construction materials into the temple that you are. Be careful how you live your life. Be faithful in serving God. When you serve, do it for God's glory. Do it in God's power. That's the motivation that it should give us. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul will say that it is our motivation to share the gospel and to be faithful, not quit serving, not give up, not stop sharing the message of Jesus Christ with others. He said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Any of us that have ever been held in account and had to stand before someone uh, to give an account, Maybe maybe it was the principal in school, maybe it was mom or dad, Maybe it was someone in the, in the legal profession, and some, a law enforcement officer, and, and maybe it was a judge that we had to stand before. And you know that sense of dread, that sense of concern and worry. I've got to appear before them. What am I going to say? While we know that we will be saved and we are therefore rewards, the idea that I'm standing before Christ ought to, ought to put fear in my heart. And he said, knowing that fear, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What was Paul's motivation for sharing the gospel? Knowing that we will all stand before God, Christians at the judgment seat of Christ, unbelievers at the great white throne judgment, and knowing that fact ought to motivate us to share the gospel. Sister Rita shared about sharing the gospel with children through CEF and the wonderful ministry that that is and our missionaries that go around the world. But what about us? What about us as we live in our neighborhoods and we live in our families and we're, we're concerned? We see those around us. It ought to motivate us to persuade, to share the gospel persuasively. Why? Because all of us will one day stand before God. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? I I would like to think that, I'd like to say that every moment of my life has been lived ready to stand before God. But there are times when I would know that even when I had done good works, it really would be nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. Oh, may the Holy Spirit take this truth and convict our hearts this morning to make sure of how we are building on our salvation because we will stand at the bema. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 6 because that's what awaits reward is what awaits the believer after the rapture but what will happen on this earth following the rapture of the church the book of revelation from revelation 6 through about chapter 19 describes some dramatic events some terrible events that are going to come th- that are going to take place on this earth the church taken out jesus snatching up and catching up the believers Shortly following that, we're going to experience, the world is going to experience the things that are described in these chapters. And I don't want to take the time this morning, we're not going verse by verse from chapter 6 to chapter 19. And all God's people said, y'all would feel like it was the great tribulation. I've had a little bit of coffee this morning, I'm ready to go. But there's a lot of details and we don't have the time to get into those, but I want to give you a thumbnail sketch this morning of this time, and then I, to, I want you to see why we need to know about this, even as believers. There are believers who develop the attitude of, well, this isn't going to happen to me, so why should I worry about it? I'm not going to be here, so why does it matter to me? Let me tell you, first of all, that if it's in the Word of God, it matters to us. It's what God wanted us to have to read and understand, and so I want to share some things with you about that, but, but look with me, first of all, in chapter 6, and begin reading in verse 16. These are all the peoples of the earth said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. doesn't say the wrath of man. says the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, if you know uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you know that what John has just seen has been he who sits on the throne, and the Lamb. In the scene in heaven, there's a book with seven seals. It's like a scroll that has been sealed seven times, and each time you unroll, there's a break of the seal, and then the next part, and the next, and the next. And no one was found worthy until they found the Lamb that had been slain before the foundation of the world. We know exactly who that is. It's Jesus Christ. And so the lamb is contrast with the other things that you'll see in the book of Revelation, such as the beast that speaks of the Antichrist. It's interesting also that in the book of Revelation you'll find Satan's anti-Trinity. You'll find Satan, you'll find the false prophet, and you'll find the beast or the Antichrist. Each one correlates to a person of the Trinity. And they will persuade, there will be evil spirits, and they will persuade people on this earth to follow and to worship the person that we refer to as the Antichrist or the beast. But notice that he says the day of his wrath has come. This is a demonstration of God revealing his son, Jesus Christ. I'll remind you that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. It is not the revelation of John. It is the revelation to John, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And any time we look at prophecy, any time we look at the book of Revelation, it is always to point us to Christ. It is always to point us to God, the one who is the revealer, the one who has given the revelation. It is to help us understand him and know him better. So as we look at this, I want to walk through this very quickly and just summarize these chapters to give you a, a sort of... A, um, just a thumbnail sketch of what's going to happen shortly following the, the rapture of the church, there will be the leader of what will be the re- revived Roman Empire. now don't think there's going to be a bunch of people in Roman centurion garb marching around, but understand that many of the nations, particularly in the nations of Europe and some into into uh, Asia were part of the old Roman Empire you'll remember that the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had and Daniel interpreted, there was the statue, the gold head, the silver chest, and all the way down to two iron legs. Those were the Roman Empire. And then there's the ten toes that is the iron mixed with clay. They are of the Roman Empire, but they do not have the strength. At some point, perhaps before the rapture, there will be a coalition of these nations that will regather. Now, I want to say at the very beginning... There are many things that we see in our day, but be very, very careful of trying to identify things that we see in our day as the fulfillment of these prophecies. I will say, however, that there are things that we see taking place in our day that help us understand how these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. For example, we already have something very similar in our day to this. We have the European Union. Now, don't go out of here and say, well, that preacher said that the European Union was the revived Roman Empire. No, we have a coalition of nations that for the most part used to be part of the Roman Empire and they have gathered together for a common purpose. That shows us this is exactly how this could take place. You see, there are no prophecies waiting to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. It is imminent. The rapture hangs over our head. It could happen at any moment. But we look at our world and we see how... This isn't necessarily that prophecy being fulfilled, but it helps us understand how it will be and how things will take place. In fact, I'll give you an example of this. Don't get too far ahead of myself, but I used to wonder how on earth, even with the Christians taken out, there's enough unbelievers in this country, especially in America, that they want to go along. How will they get them to go along with the Antichrist program? And I want to tell you that we have seen how... People can be persuaded to do things that they would probably never have done and convinced that it's the best thing to do and the right thing to do, and they can be persuaded that what they really don't want to do is the Christian thing to do. In fact, there will be people, I believe, who will take the mark of the beast because they believe that it's the Christian thing to do. And they'll be persuaded. That's why God says he will give them a strong delusion so that they will believe a lie. Is this taking place in our time? I'll explain in a moment why I don't think that that's the case. And I'm pretty sure biblically that it's not the case. But it does help us understand how these things will transpire and how people will be brought into it to go along with what Satan is going to do. This political leader of this revived Roman coalition of nations will make a covenant or a treaty with the nation of israel there will be a peace plan there will be a peace initiative at the beginning when this covenant is signed will begin the seven years of the tribulation and in fact things will start well things will start with peace look in chapter six and i want you to see the first seal we're not going to walk our way through every seal But I want you to see the movement. Now, some people will try to identify this rider of this white horse. Some will try to identify him with Christ. It's not Christ. Some will try to identify him with specifically the Antichrist. But each of these riders isn't necessarily one individual. It is a movement that will take place. It is a widespread event that will take place, not a singular event. For example, when death comes, it's not going to be one person who's going to start killing people. It's going to be widespread death. But the four horsemen of the apocalypse, now I know some of you immediately, as soon as I said that in the early service, I heard Ric Flair down here on the front row, Um, and a few of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. How many of y'all remember the four horsemen back, what was that, in the 70s or 80s? A lot more than the early service. That crowd in the early service is clearly more spiritual than the 10 o'clock service. I'm not talking about Ric Flair and the four horsemen, okay? I'm talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What are these? I want you to see the first one. He says, I saw, when the first seal is opened, I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. Now, what is lacking from a bow? What goes with a bow to make it effective? You have to have arrows. This is a weapon that has been disarmed. This is a, this is a weapon, this is a peace plan. And this first horseman is going to come with peace. Can you imagine the esteem that a world leader would have to bring peace to the Middle East? And the Antichrist is going to sign, this, this world leader is going to bring a, a peace, of, a covenant of peace and a treaty of peace with the nation of Israel. And at first it's going to seem pretty peaceful, but then following the white horse, the second horse comes after the second seal is opened, and he's red, and there's, there's war. What starts in peace will end in war. Isn't that the the trend of mankind always? Following World War I, they said, oh, this is the war to end all wars. We're going to have a time of peace. And 20 years later, the same nations that had been fighting 20 years before are fighting again, and millions are dying. And so they'll say, peace. But as the scriptures and one of our forefathers said Men say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And this war will come and it will follow. Following that will come a time of famine. The third horse will come and there will be a time of famine. And then the fourth horse is death that will follow. And hell follows after the fourth horse. And that is what is going to take place during this time. That is why the people of this earth will say to the rocks and the hills, fall on us. Because who can hide us from his wrath. After the the covenant is signed, an individual that is referred to in scriptures as the false prophet will establish a religious system. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 13. There are those who try to identify this with specific denominations and churches in our time, but it will transcend, I believe, any one group it will be something that will draw in in an ecumenical approach it will draw in a variety of religions into one religion as part of that i want you to look in revelation 13 and i don't want to take a long time with this this morning but i feel the need because this is one of the questions that often is a, a raised concerning the tribulation and i want to sh- i just want to give you some biblical things to help you evaluate when you hear someone say this is the mark of the beast this is the mark of the beast. What does the Scriptures tell us about this? You know, when Jesus told his disciples, you will hear people say, Lo, here here is the Christ, or here is the Christ, and he says, don't believe them. You You have my word that it's not them. So when I hear people say, oh, this is this, and this is the Antichrist, and this is the mark of the beast, and this is all these things, go to the Scriptures. In Revelation 13, in verse 15, Drop down with me to verse 16, rather. Eight times in the book of Revelation, you'll find this mark described or talked about. Here's the primary The false prophet, he, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark where? In their right hand or in their foreheads. I'm going to say this, and this is all I'm going to say about it, not in their upper arm. We'll just leave that right there. I want you to be biblical, folks. That isn't a statement about what you need to do medically. That's simply a biblical statement about don't listen to some of the things you hear if it doesn't line up with the word of God. And he says he puts it in their right hand and their forehead that no man may buy or sell. This is not medical. This is economic. And it is related to a religious choice because he says he has caused them to worship the beast previously that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then verse 18 gives us that infamous number, 666 is the number of his name. This is a conscious act of worship that will not be something that believers can participate in. If we're still here, this hasn't transpired. So when you hear people saying this right here, this now is the mark of the beast, you know it doesn't line up with Scripture. We're not going to be here. And it is a conscious choice of worship. It is interesting that it is going to be the government enforcing a religious choice, a religious action that will affect people economically. Now, let me pause right there and say that while this is not transpiring in our day, this spirit is already here where there is pressure to make religious choices, and if you don't take, make those choices, you are economically affected by it. So these things are already taking place, though it's not the specific prophecy being fulfilled. It helps us to see this is how it can happen and this is how it will happen. So when you look around, don't be disturbed. Be understanding. See things with knowledge, not fear. so biblically if you've heard something recently (laughs) that was supposed to be the mark of the beast you you read these verses and that's all as as that great theologian Forrest Gump said that's all I'm going to say about that (laughs) following this the seven seals will be poured out in Revelation chapter 6 beginning with those four horsemen there will be 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. 144,000 witnesses will be commissioned to proclaim the message of salvation during the tribulation period. These will not be from a particular denomination or a particular church. These will be 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. They will be young Jewish evangelists that will go throughout the world proclaiming salvation. There will be seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8 through 11. With each of these, the intensity increasing, the sun and the moon will be darkened, the sea will be, the water will be blighted, there will be millions, literally billions of people will die during this time. In fact, if you take the percentages, it's estimated that one out of every two people left on earth will die during the tribulation period. That's not including the regular death rate of what will take place. I want to tell you, this is like nothing that has ever happened on this earth before, short percentage-wise, of the flood in Noah's day. Following this, there will be the persecution. I'm sorry, there will be two witnesses who will speak in Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. The whole world will see them. Many people try to speculate on who they are. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some believe because of their miracles and wonders that they'll perform their prophecies that it will be Moses and Elijah. Others have tried to figure out others. We don't know who they are but we know that they will be witnesses and testimonies to God, even in this dark time. It's an amazing truth that even in the time of the greatest judgment of God on this earth, there's still mercy and grace. There will be the persecution of Israel at the midpoint of the tribulation period. It is likely, based on scripture, that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. There are already those who are ready for this. There are There are devout Jewish people who are ready for temple worship to be restored. I've seen videos of sacrifices that have taken place. They're training. They're preparing. There's others that have encountered and talked to people. This doesn't mean that it's going to happen because they're ready. It just means that when it happens, they're ready to go. And it's perhaps part of the treaty that the Antichrist will make with Israel. They will be allowed to restore that and restore temple worship. But halfway through the Antichrist is going to commit what is called the abomination of desolation and he will enter into the temple and establish himself as God to be worshipped. He will break that covenant with Israel. At that point, there will be the great attack on Israel. Satan will be cast out of heaven into earth. And the Bible says, woe to the earth because he has come. There will be seven bowl judgments that are poured out, Revelation vile judgments that are poured out in chapter 16, you see that unholy trinity that will then be fully functioning on this earth. It's very interesting that it is a correlation between that trinity and the trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We don't have the time to go into that this morning. And then there will be, in chapter 17 and 18, the overthrow of the false church, that false religion that was set up, followed by the campaign of Armageddon, a final battle that will take place to end this period, leading and culminating in the return of Jesus Christ as he comes back. These are all dreadful events. This is not something to take lightly. It's not something to be fearful about. I've talked with folks who are troubled when they read the book of Revelation. They're disturbed by what takes place. For the believer, there's nothing for us to be disturbed about. We will be experiencing that blessedness of being with our Savior in heaven. But why does God want us to know this? Why does God give us this prophecy and tell us to read it? In fact, the book of Revelation is the only book that has a blessing pronounced on those who will read it and understand it and keep it. And partly I believe that that is because most of us wouldn't read it because it's hard to understand it's hard to read. You have to take in. Uh, you have to compare scripture with scripture, and you, you read these images and you read these things, and you're like, "What is this talking about?" I don't understand. But he says, "Blessed is the one that reads it and keeps it and understands it." Why does God give this to us? He gives it to us because prophecy is not given to us just to make us aware of future events. If Prophecy was only about the events happening. It would only benefit those who lived in the time of the fulfillment. It wouldn't matter to anybody else. It wouldn't have any blessing or any promise. But the scripture is given. It's a value to every generation because prophecy, like all divine inspired revelation, is to point us to the revealer. It is to point us to God. It is to point us to Christ. And this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does the prophecy of these events in these chapters tell us about God? I want to give you three things this morning that I believe are essential for us and three truths about God and our response to it. First of all, number one, these prophecies, this tribulation period, reminds us of the sovereignty and the power of God. What is taking place in this world is not just random events that are, that are coordinated by man. It's not some hidden conspiracy. That doesn't mean that there's not people who are trying to manipulate things, but let me tell you something. They're not in charge. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care how much influence they have. I don't care how many people they have on their side. I don't care any of that. They're not in control. God is in control of what is taking place. And that starts with us right now. Quit fretting and worrying and staying up all night because of what you saw on Facebook or because of what you heard on the news or because of what someone has convinced you of. Trust in the fact that God is in control. And God is powerful. He is the one that has the power to do these things. We sometimes think of this battle of good and evil in this world and we have Satan on one side and God on the other and we're sort of, they're they're fighting against each other. Let me tell you something. It's a lost battle before it even began. Christ has already won the victory. Satan's fighting a losing battle. There is no hope. He has no hope at all. And he knows that his time is short, Revelation will tell us. He knows that time is short because he knows he's going to lose. Understand God's power and authority. So we submit to his authority. Even in chapter 6 when he says, come and see, it is a reminder that God is orchestrating all of these events from heaven. He is the one that's in control. The second truth this tells us about God, speaks to us, is his justice and his wrath. His justice and his wrath. Those are not popular attributes of God to talk about. We like to talk about God's love, and God is certainly a God of love. We love to talk about his grace and his mercy as we will in a moment, and he is certainly a God of grace and mercy. But God is also a God of justice. His justice is the overflow or the outflow of his righteousness. And I, for one, am grateful that our God is a righteous God because he is all-powerful. And if he were all-powerful without being righteous, we wouldn't stand a chance. He'd be nothing more than an omnipotent tyrant. But he is righteous, and that's what he's going to be doing in these days. He is going to be setting this world to right. He is going to be restoring this earth and this entire creation to its originally intended purpose. And I am glad I look around and we see in this world there is no righteousness. There is no justice. Even at its best, human justice is inadequate. You could take a human judge who has no bias, who has no prejudice, who is completely fair, and he presides over a, a case, and he gives justice. Even the most perfect human justice is going to fall short. The judge stands behind, sits behind his desk, and the family comes in, and there's a child who's been murdered, And he may pass sentence on the murderer, and it may be a fair sentence, and it may be a just sentence. But it can never be restorative. It can never restore to that family what has been taken away from them. They may walk away with a sense of justice, but human justice is always imperfect and inadequate at its very best. But when God pours out justice, and when God does it, it will be with righteousness, And it will set things to right. It will restore things to right. And that's why when I read through this, it doesn't disturb my heart. It blesses my heart to know that this world, every crime that has ever been committed where justice was never served will be set to right. And all the wickedness and all the vileness and all the terrible things that have happened and all those who got away with what they did will be called into account. Why? Because God is a righteous God and this justice is the overflow of his righteousness, and his wrath is the outflow of his holiness. God is a holy God, and he will restore things to a perfect condition. Do you remember what God said when he created all things? He created on the first day, and he created on the second day, and he created on the third, the fourth, fifth, and God saw that it was what? Good. Aren't you glad that one day he will look at this restored creation, and he will look at us... (laughs) And he will say, I see good, I see what is righteous, and I see what is just. The third truth that that these chapters tell us about our God is about his grace and his mercy. Between each expression of justice, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, there's witnesses. There are witnesses to the truth even in the time of the greatest judgment. 144,000 proclaiming the truth around this world. Many will be martyred, I believe. There will be many martyrs. If you witness, if you are a testimony, in fact, the word martyr is the word witness. It's one who witnesses even to the point of death. To witness for the truth in the, in the tribulation will be to commit yourself to die. And then the two witnesses. What? In the middle of judgment, God still cries grace. God still cries mercy. And He's the same God that's crying mercy and grace to us today, extending grace. We deserve justice. We deserve the, the punishment that's going to be poured out. We just deserve that wrath that's going to be poured out. And God in his grace and mercy allows us to be in a place like this this morning, and to hear the gospel, and to know the gospel, and to respond to the gospel. God's grace and God's mercy. In fact, if you look in chapter 7, I want you to see this. Look in verse 9, Revelation 7 and verse 9. I want you to see the saved. His grace and mercy is revealed through those witnesses that are sealed but here are those who are saved. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. This is a large crowd. It's so big you can't even get a, a handle on it. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Drop down to verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I, John, said to him, Sir, thou knowest. And he, the elder, said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Despite how difficult it will be to trust Christ and follow Christ in the tribulation period, there's going to be a great multitude that demonstrate God's mercy. Isn't that what God has done? In every time period of every era in human history, he has poured out justice and he has poured out judgment and his wrath has been manifested. And yet in spite of that deserved justice and wrath, God has poured out mercy and God has poured out grace. And he will do so in that time as well. People will say, Let me add a word of warning to this. I have heard people say, well, I don't know if all this stuff is true about Jesus coming back. And I'm going to wait. I'm going to hang around and see. And if it happens, then I'll get saved during the tribulation period. Let me say to you several things. First of all, it is possible that you will not be able to. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that those who have rejected the truth, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie so that they will not believe. There will be those during the tribulation period, and many believe that anyone who's heard the gospel before will not be able to get saved. There are those who will argue that. I'm not here to argue that point. If you believe differently on either side of that, I'm not going to argue with you and debate with you over it. But I do know that it's a very strong possibility because the delusion will be so strong. There are others that will die. They will not get the opportunity. One out of two, someone has estimated that, that at the current population is about three and a half billion people. The third problem with getting saved during the tribulation is this. If you won't trust Christ now, in a time when it is offered freely to you, in a time of liberty, in a time of freedom, in a time where there's no pressure, and you won't accept grace now, what makes you think you will accept it when all of this is taking place? When your life will depend upon it? When punishment and judgment is being poured on out? And when literally at the end, the gates of hell will be opened and demonic spirits will be released to torment man? And what do they do In chapter 16, I believe it is, after every punishment is poured out, man blasphemes God. Three times it says, and man blasphemed God. The tribulation will not be a time to risk your salvation. That's why God says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You say, preacher, you're trying to Scare me into making a decision, no. But I tell you this, if I could scare you out of hell, I'd do it and never apologize for it. God's grace is extended. Will you receive it? Christians, what does this motivate us to? Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade. We persuade men. Father, I pray that this truth will sink into our hearts in this moment. I pray that you will burden our hearts with our lost friends and our lost family. Forgive us, Lord, for not being the bold witnesses that we should be. Father, I pray that if there's one here today that has never trusted you as their Savior, Lord, that rather than face the justice, they will embrace the grace. Father, help them this morning to trust in you as their Savior.